Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Finding Backcountry podcast. This is actually um, rare because this was a twofer. I recorded two today and that doesn't happen very often, but I love it because well, A, I get to talk about hunting and B, uh, you know, I knock out a couple podcasts and then, you know, if I don't get a couple for a week or two here, then I've, I've got some in the, in the bank, but man, talk about a lineup today. I had, uh, Aaron Snyder was actually on my previous episode, uh, that's probably already released since this. And then, uh, extra, extra treat for today. I got, um, my buddy, I'm going to call you a buddy. We've never officially, I don't think we've ever met in person, but man, I've been following, uh, Marlon Holden on, you know, the Instagram. And I think even before that, man, like clear back in the day, right. What Marlon, what, what, uh, well, first of all, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. Appreciate <laughs> you having me on. Yeah. If I'm not careful, I'll get a hold ahead of myself, but, um, yeah, man, I'm trying to think now, like, I mean, I, I'm sure it was like, what what's your what was your background like before social media? I mean, you were Eastman's. What else, right? I, I wrote some stuff. This, yeah, I I jumped into it head first because I you know none, none of my family was into hunting, so I kind of found it by happenstance. I was a fishing boat captain, um, did fishing for a lot of years, and hunting seemed like a just an awesome challenge. So I didn't start till I was probably say 28 something like that maybe the, towards the end of 27 and um and i i literally went and bought everything i needed saved enough like you know everything optics scope tripods <laughs> backpacks bow like i just went to the store put it all in the cart okay set me up let's go had no clue what i was doing kind of deal probably still don't um <laughs> but i uh yeah i started uh i thought it would be so cool to be on video you know just young and naive and um learning a lot but yeah i started gray light productions i was yeah. on some forums and yeah. started gray light productions we released four dvds to the major box stores and kind of learned that i didn't like toting a camera around <laughs> hated the editing room and said forget this i'm going to go back to just hunting for me and then it's just been basically social media since then dude that's that's what it was man is uh i knew in my memory i could remember watching those and then specifically um i remember reaching out to you this is back in when for before again before social media so it was just forums right and i it must have been it must have been the eastman's forum that you were um pretty active on uh under your gray light handle and um you were i'll never forget because you were like openly willing to help with like again at that at this point i mean we're talking like probably 15 years ago right you were you were like getting heavy into it by then still right like i think that this year 
is Maybe. actually going to be my 14th year in hunting, yeah. 13th or 14th year in hunting. So, I mean, close in that wheelhouse for yeah, sure. It, it must've been a little bit, it must've been a little bit after that because I remember, um, you know, you had, you, I had seen footage of you like knocking down big bucks in probably Colorado or wherever you were. And I think that's where we were asking you, my brother and I, um, had been, you know, we had any, any mule deer hunter, I think has Colorado on their list, you know? And, um, anyway, I'll just never forget because I, we reached out to you and you could just tell that your, your information and your response was genuine and you weren't, you know, you were telling us enough to be helpful and, and actually help us without, you know, to go to this peak or that ridge or whatever. And, uh, it was just different. It was a different feel, uh, the advice that you were given from, you know, everyone else really at the time. And so that's always stood out to me, man. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I try and be authentic. I mean, it's, it, it's one thing to, I think so many people are e-scouting everybody's stuff nowadays that it's completely changed the ball game since then. But <laughs> back then, you know, you'd go on Google earth and it was so pixelated. So garbagey looking that you couldn't even really tell what was happening but nowadays it's almost like you can zoom in on something and it's almost you know it's it's like that's why you got to crop backgrounds out and people get all weird but i try to be authentic i want to i want to be helpful i want to um you know truly encourage young people that are getting into it or or you know maybe don't have the direction because i didn't have any direction when i was getting into it it was really a challenge living in a beach community in Southern California and being involved in bow hunting. It's almost like you were the <laughs> black sheep of the entire coast. You know, people like that, you what? And you wear a camo hat that says anything about deer, you know, a rack on or you had a bow you were looked at as you were basically a nemesis public enemy, number one, <laughs> and you get rotten fruit thrown at you and boo-boo faces and all that. So I, I, I kind of just didn't have the mentorship. And when I started really learning stuff, I'm like, man, this is not the way to be. And so I've always kind of had a tendency to, if somebody works hard, I'm into, you know, at least helping with the basics. I think that's yeah. kind of a good, good way to be in general. Well, and I, <clears throat> I wonder as you're talking there, I mean, you know, a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of those guys, you know, that are not willing to, I don't, I don't know. I just, I feel like maybe because you came at hunting at a different angle like you're saying you know to you it wasn't um you know I don't know it was just different for you you know you you saw it from an angle of like hey I just tried to get into this too and it sucked you know and I didn't know what I was doing until you know maybe someone helped you and maybe you just learned it the hard way but either way um you know as opposed to like you grow up around it and your dad's making jokes about you know your buddies his buddy's still in his hunting spot and he does not, he's not going to tell his, his, you know, coworker where he hunts and, and that rubs off on you as a kid, like it did with me or whatever. And it's like, you know, and I wonder, it just seems like maybe you had a different perspective there. And so, like you said, it was made, made sense to you to, you know, and I'm, I'm just speaking for you if that's okay, but <laughs> no, totally. I mean, I get that. I can actually see your position from that, you know, from that side of things, because I didn't grow up with anybody hunting around me. Um, I grew up big game fishing and unlike deer that'll come back to the same country and call it their home, uh, fish don't do that fish, you know, they travel 
hundreds of miles, thousands of miles. Sometimes, you know, they migrate from the uh, Asiatic over to the, you know, the North Pacific down into our bite. Like, I mean, that's 11,000 miles round trip. So the, the fish are a little bit different and, you know, just because a fish might, you know, a group of fish might be, um, set up on structure feeding on bait 60 miles out on a certain ridge doesn't mean the currents will stay that way that you might get an eddy that will stay that way with a bump of warm water for two three days then it'll start pushing west or whatever and the fish will move with it so it's a little bit different um and i started winning a lot of tournaments and having a lot of fun doing the the big big game uh marlin fishing and um hunting just seemed like one of these awesome pursuits and so when I got into it, I didn't grow up at school with friends that, you know, had parents that took their sons hunting. And so none of that was around me when I started hunting. I had nobody around me. Um, and everybody that did hunt in California was like this reclusive, very quiet, super weird, you know, the culture was, um, well, no, 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 he's not in the loop. You know, he's not part of the the little crew and oh you don't know that person well you know you can't you know no they can't be in this group and i mean some of them are really good hunters um and the other you know bunch are just a bunch of guys that want to be the guys that are really good hunters and it's kind of an interesting thing here where there's really not much camaraderie it's a bunch of people that um get together and poke foam targets at threes and drink beer and have barbecues and i'm just not really into that scene yeah. so i don't i've never gone to three d's it's not really my my deal but it's a different when you try and enter the hunting arena in a place where hunting is not necessarily socially acceptable and when you do meet people that hunt because california really doesn't have big deer whenever somebody finds a spot where 120 inch four point will grow it's kind of like whoa this guy's doing something so let's you know stock the living daylights out of him and uh, he must be doing something wrong kind of deal. And, and so it's a really strange place to learn how to hunt. And very quickly, within, I'd say, a year, I said, man, I'm over this. And I started going everywhere. I went to Idaho. I went to Colorado. I went to Arizona. I went to Nevada, like just checking the country out. And um, fortunately for me, I've always been self-employed. So when I started uh, in into hunting, I would spend, I would say, over 170 to 180 days a year in the field. I just dove in. Like, I just wanted to learn everything, just like fishing. I wanted to take what I knew about hunting the water and hunt the land. And I wanted to know about fawn recruitment, carrying capacity, feed, cover. I wanted to know why, the temperatures, the rain, when it fell, the summertime, wintertime where the animals went. I wanted to know body language. I wanted to know what they were eating, what the difference was from browse to what the difference was to, to, um, you know, why they would graze or why they would browse and why deer, which are, you know, supposedly browsers would graze in certain situations and the difference between elk and deer and their interaction and habitat. And like, I literally dove in head first and spent, you know, the last 14 years ish approximately just, becoming such a student that I didn't care about what people thought. I cared about what the deer were thinking. And that's been my pursuit ever since, I think. Man, what a, what a great perspective to have, you know, if you're going to get into hunting, um, 
you know, and uh, it's just, it's fresh in my mind with uh, Snyder this morning, but we were talking about a little bit about, you know, the differences of, um, you know, with social media and stuff and how that affects, you know, what people are doing and how they're doing it and just that whole, that whole conversation. And, and it's just, I, I think you nailed it on the head from a different perspective is, um, man, like be in it, be in it for what it is, you know, not what it shouldn't be, you know, if that makes sense. And, and that's exactly the right answer. I, I, in my, in my mind is you should be in it to know, you know, to enjoy the process of, of hunting, you know, not, not just, you know, how, how do I go about getting a, a selfie, you know, a buck on the ground so I can, I can take an Instagram photo or whatever. And, and I, and I love Instagram and the whole social media thing. I, you know, I'm pretty active on it and I, th- I think you are a little bit too, but, um, you know, that doesn't mean that that's your, your motivation. So I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. Social media. I mean, it's exciting to share. It's exciting because, you know, all of our friends going back from before the forum days that we've made over the last decade or so, it's kind of, it's a great place to share. It's a great community to share because everybody's there and and it's almost better than a text message now because once you post it, you know, all your buds are there and it's good to see like whenever you guys, you or your brother kill a buck, I'm super excited to see it. And it's a great place for everybody to see it where you're not sending out 50 million text messages. <laughs> Forums are so antiquated. I don't think I've been on a forum in probably seven or eight years. Yeah. And um, so I, I like social media, but I think that uh, social media is not the reason. And I don't hunt for social media. I, could care less if, if it doesn't exist tomorrow i'm not going to change anything i do um and and going back to aaron i mean he's arguably one of the guys that i respect you know the most i uh, respect guys that are in the industry but working hard i think you know like remy warren he's another guy i respect a ton i really like tim burnett too and there's a, there's a handful of other guys out there that are just doing some really good work that are solid guys um, you know, I respect what they're doing and, and Aaron, he's, he's a guy that, you know, um, I'd put my back up against his any day in camp and make sure that, um, you know, whatever happens out there, I, we come out together and we work hard together, that kind of thing. We've talked about doing a couple of hunts together. And he's one of those guys that, um, I think says it how it is. He's real, um, doesn't have any, uh, pretense. Yeah. And there's no, there wouldn't be, if I would put this correct, there wouldn't be, uh, you know, he's not trying to get anything out of you. And that authenticity, I think, is really rare. And I, I respect it a lot. So he's good. I'm glad I got to come after him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, th- thinking back to you talking about just how far you've dove into this and how much you dedicate to it. Um, I, I feel like there might be two types of guys, right. And I'm just, I'm just creating this off the top of my head, but maybe, you know, there's, there's guys that dive into something that far and they either burn themselves out or it's, it becomes their whole life. You know, they dedicate their whole entire life to it. Cameron Haynes or whatever, you know, just guys, the guys that you know, that are just like, this is what I do. And, and I'm a student of this the rest of my life. I mean, do you see any, 
and I, and I don't think that one is better or worse. Don't, don't get me wrong. Burning out on something, I've done it plenty of times. And that's just, that's just your way, you know, your body's way of saying, Hey man, like this isn't what you truly love, you know, I guess. But where do you think mule deer hunting specifically falls with that for you being like so into it, so hardcore for, for a short period of time, relatively short. It's kind of funny. Um, I'm going to make a really silly comparison and you probably laugh and roll your eyes at the same time. But, um, uh, you remember when candy crush came out <laughs> vaguely, like, I have yet to play one game of candy crush. I hope that doesn't mess up your oh, uh, analogy. <laughs> it doesn't at all because I hate the game. Um, uh, but my son, you know, he was all about it. And so I had the app on my phone. He'd sit there forever and just yeah. play candy crush. So that was the best thing ever. And I'm like, can I have my phone back? You know, kind of deal. And, <laughs> Um, I remember that, you know, those things are phases, right? Games come and go. There's all these different games and I don't play games, but my son does. And, you know, it'll always be the next one. And that kind of speaks back to the intensity of hunting. I don't think hunting is a game. Um, hunting, I, I would say not only hunting, but just outdoorsmanship, being a woodsman is something that is just a, a core part of my DNA now, meaning that it's my identity. I, I don't, I don't know who I am without it. It is just who I am. I am a provider. You put me in the mountains. We're going to live. Um, if something bad happens, I will get you out. I don't have one part of me that quits, that gives up. This says it's too hard, too tough, too far, too difficult, you know, too challenging. My mind can handle it. I don't care if there's lightning cracking around us or if we're busting through big snowdrifts. It doesn't matter. It may be difficult. Going may be slow. You may want to stop, but I'll never quit. It's my identity. It's everything I know. And, and I'll take that to my very last step, whether I'm packing out a buck and slide down a shell slide and fall off a cliff and die, or whether... I'm incapacitated in, you know, sitting on the porch, <laughs> hopefully one day staring at the mountains in a rocking chair. I, I don't know, but it, it, it is my identity. And so the, the tenacity and the love, the charisma that I have for it, that it is exactly who I am. And um, the, the zeal and love for it will absolutely never fade. I think that as I get older that shift um you know bow hunting has been this thing for me that used to be challenging uh, now when i look at a buck and a scope i'm analyzing whether or not i want to kill it and so it's not it, it, it's don't get me wrong it's still challenging and you don't always execute the perfect stock things happen but i'm in a place now where if i see it i know i'm going to get a shot period like it's not that it's I'm going to get that shot. And so now it's, you know, now I'm getting pickier and more selective and I'll draw hunts a little bit longer and just kind of, you know, I think that's a natural progression of things. I think the next step for me is to like get rid of the wheel bone, start shooting, you know, a curve. And I don't know when that's going to happen. I, I, I've told myself that as soon as I, you know, I kill a couple public land bucks, you know, over the 200 mark, I'll, I'll probably start messing with a curve on a few hunts. And as I get older into my, definitely into my, probably my fifties and sixties, I will, probably won't 
use a wheelbow anymore and the trad guys out there you know they they know very well that a, a wheelbow is, is you know it's a training wheelbow it's it's pretty easy um but I, I know that a lot of people don't share my sentiment with that i think we all have our journey and all have our path and um you know i'm really happy with being able to provide consistent organic protein for my family I and mean, that's all we eat all year long it's just deer meat i mean i, I got uh, four of them in the freezer and um you know we just eat on it constantly um a couple of my friends uh, are, are chefs at different restaurants and they know how to whip up some of the coolest stuff so we've had deer tamales and enchiladas and thai food and just you know they make these amazing meals and i just get super excited being able to share with this community of people and family and friends and we could have these meals based around the fact that i went out in the field and procured this organic meat and when it brings people together in a way like that, that, you know, you see everybody smiling and it's all brought together based off of a little bit of hard field work and hauling it off your back, off the mountain on your pack. And, you know, it just gives you this different love for it that is more of a provider. And there's a sense of fulfillment, I guess, I think in, in terms of a hunter, we think of ourselves slightly as like a provider. Um, and so th that goes a long way for me and my love for it. But, you know, kind of getting off track, I guess, a little bit. I, I think that my next stage in this at some point in time might be within the next decade. It might not be. But um, I think Aaron actually has a little bit of an influence on that. I might, you know, pack it up sooner than later. I have a Black Widow sitting here on my desktop that they sent me oh, about a year ago that I've been plunking with. But thinking about talking to evan to get you know one of those hoits out here because i want to i want to uh, shoot one of their bows and um and start messing with that because it really intrigues me i love the art of it i love the instinct i think that a lot of what i've been studying is my own instinct over the last decade and i love the aspect of a wheelbow can be an extension of your body only so much but when you start getting into the curve world, it really starts to become a part of you. Yeah. I think the only next step is like an atlatl, right? Like <laughs> um, have, have that fluid intention with that motion that really is like almost like a, you have to <clears throat> envision the impact of the projectile of atlatl, and it and the, the envisionment of it is almost a manifestation of understanding where it's supposed to hit in that target. It's not even like an anticipated target. It's really like a, a fluid motion of the body, which I think uh, the curve and the longbow takes it a step further too, which are the things that I think will eventually be my progression with hunting. But for now, I'm just super happy whacking and stacking with this, <laughs> with this wheelbow. It's like fun, man. Yeah. I don't know if I answered a question in that, but yeah, it's it's a it's a hoot no you you did it's uh man my my short time with i picked up a recurve or a lot it was a longbow one of uh south uh stalkers for you know for a couple of years like religiously for a couple of years and uh and killed you know i killed two two uh two elk actually um and it, it is it's um <clears throat> man it, it's really tough to explain but you know those things take so much dedication and when i was using them i i knew that and i had and that's why i don't use one right now 
Um, because I just, you know, I have enough things going on in my life and I know myself that, you know, right now I just, it has to be that year round, you know, it's not just, it's not even, it's not just on a week long hunt or it's not even just three months before the season. It's all year. It's every day, you know, to really get in that groove. But man, it is like exactly what you said. It's so sweet when, you know, you get to that point with a, something instinctive and that's all I ever shot was just instinctive. Um, but when I was really, you know, putting in the time and, and the arrows, um, you would, you would all of a sudden, you know, three or four arrows had gone down range and you almost were on autopilot, not realizing that you had shot three or four arrows, not consciously thinking about it at least. And they're all just kind of stacked, you know, in a, whatever, a softball size group at 30 yards, you know? And, uh, but it, it really is just, a, another level of, you know, a, like you said, a wheelbow to me is just, it's just operating a machine, you know, and to some extent, you know, if you can control your body and operate the machine properly, it's going to work. You know, it's not, you know, there's, there's not much instinct there really. It's just, you know, you line this up with this. And if you do that exactly every time and you do a couple things and you know exactly, then this is going to perform exactly how it should. And like you, like you kind of hinted, I mean, a, uh, you know, a trad bow is complete opposite because it, it is, it is based on you, you know, it's not, you're not just operating machine, but yeah, I, I think for me too, someday, man, um, I don't know, I don't know when it'll be, but, um, you know, that bug hasn't left me. It just has left me temporarily. So I, I would look forward to the day that you picked up a trad bow and just to watch that progression and, and obviously watch you be successful at it too. You know, same with, you know, I, I wasn't there when South really went through that progression necessarily, but I've seen the beast that he is now. And, and we've all kind of watched Snyder go through it and, you know, you'd be the same way. So make sure you document that process, please. <laughs> I think it's, um, I think it's really our passion and love affair with the outdoors. I think it just furthers and deepens our connection with it. I think there's something there that no matter what the, the compound matrix of the actual bow is made out of, whether it's wood or, you know, laminate or composite or whatever, I think that just the, the sheer fact that there's no cam, there's no wheel, there's no pin, there's no, it's just a, a string connected to a riser and the stick might have technology in it yet. The simplicity of where that arrow is placed based off of your connection and understanding of yourself and that extension of what that bow is because the bow truly ends up becoming a piece of you. It, it's tailored to you and you shoot it according to how you've practiced with it and how it shoots based off of how you feel with it in your hands. And I think that that's such a, such a, a really a love affair. And, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily, you, you kind of get that, uh, with a compound. Um, I mean, I definitely have it with a compound for sure. Uh, it's just, it's, it's slightly different. It's more predictable. It's more scalable. It's kind of like the thing that if you don't shoot for a month, you can pick it up. And if I don't shoot for two or three months and I pick my bow up, I can shoot 70 yards. No problem. I might struggle out to like 120 or 110. I might struggle, but anything inside of 70 is like a done deal. Right. And so it's kind of interesting how that how that is. I think it's just more complex, and and you know you give more of your time to it. But I I loved watching you do it. I remember you 
picking up the uh, the trad bow, and um, and it's always been something I've been intrigued with. So definitely going to lean that way. Yeah. As time goes on. I uh, <clears throat> another archery. While we're just on archery, um, for for the time being, I remember. Um, I think it was you. I'm ninety percent sure um, that did something that I didn't see hardly anyone else do or preach really. Um, didn't you, don't didn't you shoot your broadheads almost year round out of your compound? Do you still do that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I, um, I don't, I don't, you know, I shoot a Reinhardt 18 sided target. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not sponsored by them. I just think they make, you know, the best broadhead target. Um, and you can shoot the crap out of it until you cut the thing in half, basically. And, and broadheads to me, I mean, if I'm, if I don't hunt with what I'm shooting, what's the point? I mean, it's great to like, you know, line up a scorecard, but unfortunately scorecards don't equal dead animals. You know that. So I, uh, I always shoot with broadheads at yardage and I'm, you know, I'm a fixed blade guy. I'm, doesn't matter what side of the fence you sit on with that i mean to me it doesn't make a difference it's just me i'm i'm call me old school and antiquated and, and semi uh um you know i'm not in the digital age yet right i think expandables are kind of like that next gen same with the slider sites i don't use slider sites i'm a fixed pin guy and you know my pin my pin guard looks like uh, it's all clogged up with a bunch of pins right but uh, with that being said, yeah, I, I like shooting fixed blades because I like knowing what they do. And, you know, believe it or not, I mean, you, you know this too, that each arrow performs differently. And you'll have your top three arrows that you know are just lights out. The other ones kind of based on spine tolerance and the way they fly um, aren't quite as tight as the first three or whatever. I'll set certain arrows aside and I know that these are my hitters and they end up killing, you know, most of my deer that season. It's kind of funny, but um yeah, for sure. Always practice with, with what I hunt with. Yeah. And I never shoot a target with a field point because I just simply don't hunt with them. Yeah, man. It's, it's, uh, you know, you, you probably, <clears throat> you probably end up spending a little bit more, a little bit more on targets. You probably end up spending a little bit more, you know, to have a, I, I, I doubt it even costs you more in broadheads, you know, because we all go through broadheads where, you know, we have, two or three or five or six uh left over but man who cares right like the benefit you know the logic behind what you're saying you know it just of course you know of course you just shoot what you're gonna hunt with you know and and everyone will say you know the quote-unquote cliche marketing term it flies just like your field tips or whatever but it just a it doesn't and you know like it just doesn't you know that even even uh you know even mechanicals but especially especially your uh you know your fixed blades especially at distance too you know if it was a 40 yard shot that you're taking every time but you know with a compound we all know that effective range is further than that so anyway i always just thought that that was that was a pretty intuitive uh practice technique so you know, I haven't been doing this my whole life, Dustin, but um, I've been doing it long enough to know better and, and learned a lot in the last few years and really paid attention, like became a student of everything. And nobody touches my bows, for example, like nobody tunes a thing on my bows. Everything I do is because I did it uh, down to, you know, 
timing, camling, tiller, you know, you name it, I do it, period. And time my rests and, and, and time my own D loops. And, you know, I mean, that's all the basic stuff, but serving in my peeps and everything is, is important that you know that your equipment, your terminal tackle is your, your peep can't slide just that little bit, making your shot off. Right. You know, you're, you, you hike in the back country and you, you, you hike six miles or whatever to get where you're going and your peep is strapped, your, your bow is strapped to your pack and that peep could be up against a buckle and you slightly push it going, you know, up trail, you got to know that thing's not going to move. Yeah. A lot of guys don't. That's something that's really critical. I mean, these broadheads going back to that, whenever I hear somebody say, Oh, you know, my broadheads hit where my field points are. And, uh, and my, the first thing that comes to my mind is they're not consistent enough with their shot to know any different. Right. And if there's just simply more friction and anything with more friction, is going to slow that arrow down. Now it might only be three to four feet per second. And like you said, you're not going to see it past, you're not going to see it out to about 30, 40 yards. But once you get past 40, that's the break 50, 60, 70, you're going to start seeing three quarters of an inch, inch, inch and a half, two inches, right? When you're out to 90, you're going to see a, a two to three inch difference with the fill point and the broadhead and, and that comes with just truly understanding and knowing that that friction is going to cause that. And yeah. um, a lot of people don't also agree with shooting something at 80 yards. Well, um, and I, I'm, which I'm, is, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm glad you said that because, you know, it's um, for me, as I hear someone like you talk or Snyder or whatever, you guys that I know are capable of, you know, and have taken shots at whatever we're going to call 80 yards, you know, long, longer distance for archery who's more who's more unethical the guys the guys like you guys that and and myself included that tune our own bows know every single square inch you know every every single screw on there you you know you've been shooting every single maybe not every day but you've been shooting all year you know you're shooting your broadheads or whatever um or the guy who you know walks into a shop and has his bow set up bought set up and tuned in uh you know on june 28th and then heads out on his bow hunt and you know august 25th um but he only takes a you know a 60 yard shot or whatever i mean you know it's all it's all relative and it 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 just you know it just doesn't work it's not that simple you know distance is all relative to the shooter you know i Uh, there's so many things that go into it. I think it's a great topic. It's a touchy topic with people because they get really emotionally involved with it. I tend to not get emotionally involved in it. Um, And and I'll kind of answer a few things that I think are very critical. Um, I don't think there's one way that's better or another, but I do think that sometimes there are better Indians in camp and being a good Indian. and And I refer to it that way because, you know, you're, uh, what it comes down to is instinct. Um, I'm not the best shot. I'm not going to go out on a foam target and hit the 12 spot and smoke everybody in camp. As a matter of fact, I'm probably going to be the worst. But I'm not afraid admitting that. What I do know is I'm lethal. And what I do know is that you get me in a situation that's high pressure. And I feel really comfortable in that spot. I'm not nervous i'm not anxious i don't get freaked out i mean as a matter of fact i'll just put my bow down start taking pictures of deer in their bed or you know whatever i i have a tendency to just that's my wheelhouse that's where i feel comfortable so i don't fall apart 
And I've seen deer, you know, jump the string at 20 yards, just as much as I've seen a deer jump the string at 80 yards. It's people that would have a tendency to argue that a deer jumps the string at 20 or 80, or there's a difference in how much could happen in the distance between the time that an arrow is released at 40 yards from the time the arrow is released at 80 yards, um, or, you know, getting into a kinetic energy battle or, uh, you know, any of that, uh, realistically, it has more to do with your instinct. And when I say that, I think that instinct has a lot to do with just understanding the animal. I mean, I spent upwards of 200 days a year in the field, spending time with these things, learning ear position, learning body position, learning whether if a deer is, is feeding tense, whether if a deer is feeding relaxed, learning whether a deer in his particular feeding position needs to drop because all these animals, they spring load their legs in order to move. They can't just simply be straight legged feeding and then, and then, you know, all of a sudden be running, right. doesn't work that way. That's why they drop. They drop because they need to load their legs to move. And, and it's understanding whether or not the body position in their, you know, or whether they're bedded or whatever the case may be, uh, gives you enough time for the arrow to get there and anticipating the release of that spring. And so, you know, anticipating the load of the spring basically. And, and so it's, it's kind of one of those things where you just have to like do mental mathematical calculations. You're either right or wrong. Um, and I just, even if I make a bad shot, I, I'm really good at instinctually being able to put together how to make sure that that animal gets on the ground, basically make sure you finish what you start. Um, and, and bow hunting is uh, one of those things that it is an art. There's, you know, it just as well as I do, not everybody is meant to be a bow hunter. Everybody can go out and buy a bow, but you know, the, and, and I believe that everybody can be effective at it, but I don't think everybody is in the same wheelhouse with it. Aaron, for example, we talked about him already. He's just, you know, he's, he's, he's got the instinct. He's one of the Indians that's going to bring home food every day to the camp. Right. And, and so it's just that, that same kind of philosophy I think is really important with yardage and knowing how far you can shoot. I mean, for some people, it's just out of the question. You should not be doing it, but you might not understand the dynamics of what that animal's doing, why the animal's doing what it's doing. And the body position and which way they naturally have to turn. If a deer is feeding way downhill, you know, which way is he going to go to run? And do you understand whether he's relaxed or not? And how far are you? And are you going to get that arrow where it's supposed to go in time? And I think that hunting is not necessarily the game of being better shot than somebody or being a better, you know, better at this or that. I think it really has to do with, you know, the fundamental dynamics of, of that tiny, it's, it's the short game that matters. It's, do you know when to draw? Yeah. You know, do you know when to release? Do you know when you have a shot or when you don't? Devil's in the details. Totally, man. It's so in the details and, and it's so much in the details that, you know, when you're bow hunting, you have to understand the mechanics and the limitations of, of, you know, your own ability. And I think that, that that's really what kind of marks the difference of, I well, guess, guys that come out and 
with one and guys that come out without one yeah. more, more often than not. There's no doubt. And we probably all know guys that, um, <clears throat> hunters rather that, uh, can sit and like, like, like you kind of hinted, uh, you know, the, the bow hunters specifically we're talking about right now, or even it doesn't matter. Rifle, bow, muzzleloader, doesn't matter. That can, that can slap the target right at, at the range. Um, every time you know and they'll they'll win on the card or whatever in the you know the prs match or whatever um but that is not does not equate to dead animals and it is it's something that's you know i i don't i don't know i honestly haven't thought about it enough to think man is it you know is it learned is it genetic is it um you know what is it that's in some people that they just killers you know, they get in that situation, um, you know, and they, they don't get, you know, I, I, I hate to say that it's genetic because for me, I think part of it was learned, you know, I've been in enough pressure situations that, you know, I have the same feelings. I mean, if I screw something up on the, on, in the shot sequence, it's not because, um, the pressure got to me or, you know, I don't, I don't typically get buck fever. Now that being said, everyone's thinking the same thing. Like, well, you've never been, you know, 20 yards from a big, big buck. And that's true, you know, in a, in a bow hunting situation, but, but it happens to guys all the time, rifle hunting, muzzleloader, you know, archery at 80 yards, archery at 20 yards or whatever. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so true. So true. I think that, uh, you know, it just, uh, yeah it's, a, it's all i gotta be go ahead just being you know kind of bringing it back to what you just said um with buck fever i mean i think there's a difference between buck fever and why we do it right like the the level of jack you know like how jacked up i get in being in close to an animal where i can hear it breathe you know is totally different than buck fever like buck fever is almost like hey keep it together don't piss yourself you know relax like let's let's do this time to make it happen where we've spent all this money all this time obsessing all the years all the practice all you know got all this equipment all this gear tripods black backpacks vehicles blah 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 you are it's, it's game time like you're knocked up don't mess this up you know let's do it like bring it out and and I think that big difference, I mean, the level of jack that we get, yourself, your brother, like the people that are close to us that we know, you know, where they're at with the hunting level. I, I make no mistake in the fact that I bet you don't get buck fever. No way you get buck fever. But the level of excitement that we get from all this is unbelievable. And I think that, you know, that plays uh, very well into you know that whole philosophy of of guys that have target panic when you know it comes time the difference between shooting foam target and and shooting live animal so i don't think it really has to do with you know how big the animal is like oh not because i've never killed anything big either i mean a lot of people might argue with both of us in that and and, you know but i'm you know big to me is like i want something over 200 inches at 20 yards And, and even if that happened I got to be honest, like I wouldn't be looking at his antlers. I mean, I've killed stuff in the 190s. I've got, you know, several deer in in the mid 80s. 
uh, I never looked at their antlers once. And, you know, given that circumstance, it was the biggest deer I'd ever drawn on at that time, right? And so, with that being said, in those circumstances, I never looked at the antlers. I care less. It doesn't matter, like, right? It's 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 just not part of the process. Like it's not a part of the process. You've done it enough that you know, like, it, what is that? It's not even a, a part of the equation. You know, that's like, that's like uh, saying that a you know I I'm a big sports guy, and that's like you think a basketball, you know, an NBA basketball player. Let's say you think LeBron James. Um, is aware of how many people are in the stadium as he takes it doesn't matter what shot you know a, any shot it just doesn't matter like because it it's it's yeah. not a, it's not a part of the process of taking that shot you know it's the same thing so i get that fully and i yeah. think that that those are you know directly proportionate to one another yeah awesome man i i love that l- little bit deeper philosophy stuff on the hunting side of things and um you know, it, it shows, you know, you're, you're, you're well thought out and you're, you know, you're mindful of what you're doing and stuff like that. And it shows, cause you, you have, you not, you know, I, I'll be the guy that argues with you. You've knocked down some big bucks, but, um, w- over the years, would you say, I mean, the bucks that I, you know, that from years ago that I remember were all those kind of high Alpine, um, you know, Colorado basin type bucks, whether that's where they were or not, I don't know, but um, you seem to have, you know, recently, or, or at least since, you know, I guess maybe social media, you've, uh, you found these kind of hidden gem, big bucks in the desert. Um, what, what percentage of those kind of your, your bigger deer have come from the desert compared to those higher Alpine bucks? It's that split down the middle. I'd say, um, I can remember, um, yeah, I think it's pretty even down the middle. I've pulled, you know, my biggest buck ever has come out of the high country. He's like low 190s, uh, typical 30 and a half inch frame with 40 inches of mass. Just a real pretty, pretty stud, typical. Um, and I've killed, you know, several in the 180s from the desert too. But um, it's kind of a mix. And I love both. I go, I make it a point to do it all every year i wish there were more high country hunts you know there's not the high country hunts are kind of limited there's a ton of desert right deserts everywhere so if you don't become a specialist uh in all of it then it's going to be tough to be successful consistently in all of it i just i think that the high country is definitely um easier to find them easier to kill them like i mean it's just the high country's limiting factors getting into the country and you know physically the challenges of just trying to breathe at thirteen thousand feet kind of deal but uh, or even you know twelve thousand feet doesn't really matter i mean when you're up above 11 i think it just becomes more challenging like dealing with water logistics and the mileage to get in there and kind of just the effort you put out but once you find an animal he's better it's almost like okay this is done like we're hauling him out you know in a couple hours kind of deal but um the desert is is I've done desert hunting, um, you know, I'd probably say ever since, what, 07, 08, something like that when I first started. And my first, you know, one of my first archery bucks in the desert, um, one of the few, one of the first few deer I've killed was in the, I think in the low 70s, probably like 174 or something like that. Real pretty typical. Um, 
so I mean the the, the deer kind of all in that 70s to 80s mark and then the one over the 90 mark but I just yeah the, the, I've drawn on a couple deer at 200 inches one was uh in the high country both were in the high country actually um one he jumped my string he straight ducked my string this is probably 10 years ago and then probably uh eight or nine years ago within the same time frame in the same within the same few years there um i was at 65 yards at full draw and he stood up slightly downhill staring right at me and we had a standoff i was at full draw for like probably right around four minutes which seemed like impossible i was shaking so bad that i I was gonna there's no way i could shoot you know at that point it was awful and uh so i had to let I had to let down and he, you know, just took off basically like there's, I couldn't hold it. Um, and there might be people out there that are much more savage than me at holding their boat, but there's just not a chance. Like I was just shaking and, you know, it was like I had epilepsy or something, but, um, <laughs> when yeah, you I've only had, go ahead. Uh, sorry. When you are after these units, um, what generally, whether it's a desert unit or a high country unit, I mean, what, to what extent or what is your criteria, um, you know, to actually apply or get a tag for a unit? Um, the Arizona stuff might be over the counter. I, I, I assume you're in Arizona. I actually shouldn't even made that assumption. I don't know where you're at, but, um, I'm in California. Oh, geez. Yeah. I'm in Southern California. I, I have a art gallery that I run as my business in Laguna beach. So I'm like right in the middle of, of, uh, you know, liberal love of fair world. Um, I'm like a pro two a guy living in a place where same sex marriage is, is very much. So I don't want to get into politics. It's not necessary, <laughs> but you know, it's just, it's kind of like, the, I, I believe in God. I'm a God fearing man. I have certain belief systems and, and I don't want to let that interfere. And, you know, I certainly have no problem with whatever anybody chooses. I'm very, very understanding of of everything and anyone but as far as hunting goes i kind of live in the place where the epicenter of you know you don't hunt and if you do you kind of looked at as like a bad person but um yeah i'm in southern california dude well that's even more impressive um you know california just not known for big bucks just not you know um it it, it makes sense i mean that that terrain i mean that that's why i kind of you know, assumed, I just assumed for so many years that you were skirting over to Arizona or something like that, but, um, you know, it makes sense. Do you, do you feel like that call that California type country gets looked over because it's California and, uh, you know, there are a few big mountain ranges in California and I feel like maybe that's where guys gravitate towards if they're going to hunt there or what's your perspective on how guys look at those desert type bucks in California? Um, there's no shortage of people. That's for sure. It's if anything, I'd say it's, it's pretty reasonably high pressured. Um, it's not the loss at front, but, <laughs> uh, you're definitely going to run into hunters on the ridges. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think here it's about going to places where it looks, just looks like death and hunt it. 
that's kind of like what I do. I, I look for something that nobody in their right mind is going to go, you know, hiking across four miles of flats to get to hike up the mountain, you know, get in there another mile and a half to two miles with koas and set up and stay there for three days. Yeah. Just nobody does that. People go where there's a road, they park their truck, they hike a mile, they get up on some small little knob and call it good. And, you know, and, and candidly, I just, I don't, I do the opposite. I want to be alone. I want to be by myself. And if somebody finds where I'm at, then I'll just leave, drive 20 miles and go do it somewhere else. You know, I, I don't want to be around people and I'm being, and I'm willing to walk, get away. Are you able to run cameras in California or is it just putting eyes on the ground and, and binos up? It's a little above. So in some places, yes, you can run cameras. Uh, in some places, you can't. So you just kind of got to work with the places that you can and work with the places you can't. For instance, in some of the wilderness areas, you cannot. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like, there's nothing like putting eyes on the ground because a camera only tells you half a story. Um, and then come hunting season, a lot of the times in the desert, those deer aren't even using the water because you've already had rainfall and as soon as rain falls they don't come anymore they're yeah. done with water they're a different critter how long will you sit and glass you know a certain water hole or an area before you pass it off as you know it's time to move on there's there's no bucks here or i mean you mentioned going back consistently are you checking those every year no matter what See what kind of traffic it's getting. If it's getting the right type of traffic, I don't care if I'm I care more about, you know, kind of what kind of side I'm looking at uh, more than anything else. And the side will dictate how much time I spend around it. Because, you know, oftentimes uh, bigger animals like to be by themselves. And so they don't really affiliate with. As often, it depends on the drinker, to be honest with you. It depends on the, on the seed. If big bucks tend to use seeds, whereas, you know, smaller bucks tend to use guzzlers. Except, you know, in given places, like I know that there's no choice for the bucks on the strip and stuff like that, right? But in the areas that I hunt, um, the bigger deer tend to be on seeps away from people. Is, it, is that what it is? Is it just a remoteness, you think, on that? Or is it like an instinctual like predator survival thing that they're that they've figured out there have you pinned that down yeah the deer definitely move according to predation for sure without question i've seen deer move 20 miles in summer conditions to get away from predation (laughs) in summer in summer on summer range i've seen them move um so that definitely changes things. The deer will definitely use the terrain differently. I've also seen big bucks go nocturnal because of predation. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, we're chasing them, you know, a couple weeks or, you know, a few months of the year or whatever. But, man, they're getting chased by lions uh, all year, you know, just nonstop 365 every every single night you know every single night they try to take a drink they've got their head on a swivel for a cat totally 
it's really interesting on really dark moonless nights. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but you won't see um, much deer movement, let alone mature buck movement. You really only see them moving with um, anything past, like, let's say, quarter waxing yeah. uh, and post-quarter uh, waning. So, like, what waxing difference? You, in essence, if you have a slight crescent or less, you got nothing. Yeah. A little bit of, they can see a lot better than us in the dark, but they want a little bit of light to be able to see and move around in. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, they burn all night. Makes sense. You know, I mean, that's why, that's why guys target those, those parts of a season or hunts or whatever that, well, I mean, do you, when you apply for hunts, I mean, do you, do you worry about the moon phase ahead of time or is it just something that happens and you, um, you're going to go either way or do you kind of work around it or what's your thought there on the moon phases as far as like ahead of time? I do nothing uh, in anticipating ahead of time with moon phase, care less. Um, I'm going to hunt regardless, you know. Yeah. However, I mean, I think that it's a, I don't know if it's a well-known fact, but it, it should be a well-known fact that deer simply, well, animals in general, don't really move much on full moons. You have an hour to go off in the morning, kind of. Maybe a little bit longer, but generally less. Especially in prairies, you know, less. You can last on driving the desert for 30, 40 minutes and it's done. Or if it's a, a really, really dark night and there's no moon, you know, you might have enough feeding for an hour and a half in the morning. It's a total different thing. A lot more movement. Probably gray, you know, they're letting the bed light uh, kind of, so it's kind of a different kind of a different thing i think with the moon phase for sure but as far as pre-planning my hunts i really just hunt conditions i've known yeah that makes sense um man i like i hate to say this but this audio is just not cooperating real well um hopefully we've pulled a few things here i think i think we've got enough for like a good episode um but i'm wondering if we uh you know, dive more into the, the, uh, tactics of the desert stuff on another one. I just don't know what, uh, let me try and get a better position here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell if it's, I can't tell if it's on my end or your end or whatever. Um, for some reason, my, you know, this is a, this is a budget production. And so I'm just on my cell phone calling you. Like I don't do the internet Skype thing, but my, no, 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 that's good. How, how does this, how, is yeah. this better or no? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good right there. So we'll just monitor it. And, uh, I mean, I, I'm rolling, we don't edit much on this podcast. So, um, yeah, so that's interesting California. And so you're, you know, like, is that, a um, what, what are your season dates on those? Like when are you chasing those bucks in the desert? Um, like, I mean, so there's a there's a archery and then a general season, right? Um, so the archery seasons are, you know, I guess mid September ish, um, and then um, the general seasons go 
for part of October into sometimes into November, but generally not. Um, and so you're just hunting those rifle seasons with your bow. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's over the counter stuff and it's just, um, kind of, I mean, it's desert. Desert is probably the most formidable and challenging hunting, especially with a bow that you'll ever do. So it's not, it, it takes a lot of effort, um, for me to pull what I've been pulling out of these particular areas. I mean, they're just kind of realistically for the areas that I'm hunting, just they're almost once in a lifetime type animals. And I'm just, I feel fortunate to get in on them, but, um, you know, they're there and, uh, they're certainly available, but it's, it's like, if I go out to a different state, you know, I can find 10 or 15 animals like that. Whereas here you're lucky to find one. So it's kind of a, a different thing. I mean, out here, if you, if you pass up 120 inch four point, people think you're crazy. Like, (laughs) and you kind of are, you know, you're looking at it like this past year, I I passed up a couple deer in the, in the mid one fifties, low one sixties. And people thought I was absolutely nuts out of my mind. And I was willing to eat my tag though, you know, and I, I've also shot a lot of those kind of deer. So I, I feel like, well, let's see if they can make it. And if they can make it another year, then, you know, we might be, we might have something that might be worthwhile to go after. So I feel like holding off of animals like that will give me a better chance to have a better crop going into next year, especially in some of the more remote areas where you don't get uh, too much dedicated, you know, passionate hunter hunting activity going on where yeah. people are willing to stay back there for multiple days kind of deal. So, man, you, you know, you mentioned eating, eat, being willing to eat a tag and it's just, you know, we don't need to dive into it too much, but it's, it's a, it's a consistent theme with guys who actually kill big bucks. It, it just is, you know, it goes hand in hand. Um, you're just expecting to go home. You're not expecting it. Sorry. That's not the right word but you're okay with it. You know, you're not, um, you're not just going to pull the trigger to pull the trigger. And it's, man, it's just such a common characteristic of guys who kill big bucks or big bulls or whatever. Uh, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this, but I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, I didn't, know. and I, I didn't, I, I didn't say, big. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that you do it. I'm just saying that you're willing to, you know what I mean? Uh, like, I, I guarantee if you took an honest, you know, and you were honest with yourself, you're you're willing to eat every single tag if you don't find, you know, for some reason you don't find the deer that you're after. Now, that just goes to show even more so, you know, how, uh, you know, how proficient you are at this. But I, I promise, you know, you're, you're still that guy. I mean, you're willing to eat your tag if you had to. I... I have a hard time passing up a pretty buck when I know I'm in an over the counter area or a place that's just, you know, doesn't it like if we're on regular public land, that's, that's not something that you can draw every year. If, if it's over the counter, it's tough. When you see a mature buck that made it four and a half years, especially five years, you know, on uh on a on a general tag that that's that deer already factored in big parts of his life to make it to that point 
I mean, he evaded predators, hunters, you name it. He's, he's kind of the higher end. So if you are passing on mid one seventies to one eighty bucks in those type of situations, I mean, you're, you're just a total goofball. You, you, you deserve not tagging anything out. <laughs> and likewise, you know, there are bigger bucks on those units, but boy, there's guys that are so much better at me than holding out and killing giants that are consistent with it. I just, I haven't gotten there yet. I mean, I, I hope that we're recording this podcast right now and I get to eat some serious crow next year and I just <laughs> run into a couple of freaking giants and not, you know what I mean? But it's one of those things where I know they exist. I know, I know that it happens. It just, you know, doesn't happen to me, at least not yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, this whole California thing also kind of got me thinking right about, um, you know, do you, are you of the opinion that there's, you know, big bucks in almost every, definitely every state, right? Every Western state. But I mean, how confident are you that you could spend as much time as you're spending scouting and find, you know, a buck like we're talking about, just a, a mature buck, right? Let's say a four-year-old buck four and a half year old buck on, you know, almost any decent mule deer unit in the West. I mean, is it, is it that, is it that sure? Or is it, you know, is there still question marks for you or you've found areas that just don't hold big bucks or what, what is your opinion on that? Um, it's my opinion that any decent unit in the West, I can find a good solid buck like you're talking about period. For sure. If, That's a, if there's mule deer there, like, you know, generally mule deer live there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a done deal for sure. Um, lots of scouting and some units are going to be better than others without, without a doubt, but you can go to every state west of the continental divide and dig out that buck that you're talking about. Yeah. The guys in Washington, the guys in Oregon, you know, Idaho, Montana, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Cali, Nevada. I mean, hundred percent that deer is available. Yeah. I mean, just, we, you know, speaking of Utah, like we, we complain about, um, you know, and, and it happens in other units in other States, but, you know, we complain about all the pressure and how it, you know, it hurts the maturity of the bucks. And, and yet, you know, the units that we hunt in Utah, they're still, there's still big bucks, you know, there's still mature bucks every single year, multiple mature bucks, even on the worst moisture years that we've ever had, you know, a couple of years ago or whatever it was, you know, there were still those mature bucks. Now their antlers might be, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 inches smaller, but they're still a mature buck. And, uh, you know, it, it, but it's, it's just, it just makes it harder, you know, when there's a bunch of tags allocated for a unit it just because you, you have to hunt around the people too um and that makes it harder but yeah i agree um you know if there's a if there's a an area or a unit in the general west that you know holds mule deer um man there's just there's gonna be a there's gonna be a four and a half year old buck in there somewhere but for sure <clears throat> i think that there's you know better than that i think there's there's a handful of, you know, six and seven year old deer on every year. It's just picking that needle out of the haystack. I think the, the easiest place to see that evidentiary fact of seeing that is the high country. 
high country is like a great place to be able to really kind of get a feel for what that is because they're so visible. You see the one and a half year olds and you know, the only reason why I say one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, four and a half, not up is always that half years because they're always born in, you know, the springtime, right. May they're dropping in May. So they kind of like lose a half a year there. Right. So by the time that next year comes and they're in that season, I always call them a four and a half year old deer. I don't know why, but, um, as Mark Smith, as Mark Smith once put it, um, bucks that have, um, kids uh, earmuffs but as mark smith would put it uh buck that's humped a few does uh <laughs> that was that was mark's criteria for a mature buck is <laughs> that buck's okay. that buck's humped a few does so i the that may be our first edit on this podcast no i'll keep it in there but anyway <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah, I think that, uh, you know, when you get up into that high country and you explore some of those basins and they they got their orange summer coats on and they're up there feeding, you can really kind of see that separation of, of age class. Um, you might go through eight or ten basins, find three or four basins with deer in them, and out of those deer you might find 20 bucks, let's say, just as an, uh, as an example. And out of those 20 deer you'll see the separation of age class and you'll see how significantly more of that, you know, one and a half to a half year old deer. And then the separation from three and a half to a six and a half year old deer, there might be one deer that's six, six and a half to seven and a half years old. And then, you know, you'll find a half handful of three and a half to four and a half year old deer. And then especially when there's winter kill, you'll see the separation big time. You'll see a robust population of three and a half to four and a half year olds, but, no six and a half seven and a half and very few one and a half right yeah, yeah. that's why we have those those gaps in that age class after a, a big winter that's really interesting to see the dynamic in that and how the year after a winter kill is actually a really great year to hunt actually the first two years after a winter kill is pretty decent years to hunt but then come the third and fourth year it's like oh my gosh what happened yeah the confusion sets in like wait how come three or four years after it's you know no good and and that 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 one and a half year old deer that didn't it's survive that two and a half year old yeah. deer is missing. That whole age class is missing. Robbie, Robbie Denning uh, makes a really good point for that. I'm sure you've heard or read his stuff where, you know, he went back and some of his biggest bucks that he's ever killed were the year after a big, a big snowstorm, you know, a big winter kill. Um, you know, for that reason, because, and I've always been of this opinion and, and until he really put it into, you know, evidence or words, I didn't, you know, and, and it's the same thing that you're saying, I think, but, you know, it always made sense that those, the, you know, if there's going to be a, a deer that survives a bad winter, it's that three and a half, four and a half year old buck, because he's in his, you know, in his physical prime, I would expect. You know, even though antler antler wise, a, a seven and a half, eight and a half year old deer is probably, you know, might have bigger antlers. That doesn't necessarily mean that physically, you know, that that's the equivalent of a, a 60 year old guy. You know, his bank account's fat, but that doesn't mean he's in the best shape, you know, or whatever. But um, yeah, it makes sense. You know, the year after those three and a half, four and a half year old bucks, uh, you know, like what you're saying, they're they're the ones that are that are making it through. And so you have that window there, right? Is that kind of what you're seeing? I, I've definitely noticed that you have that window. Um, and it's kind of interesting because there's, there's a couple trains of thought on that. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but 
it, it really, you know, these things, I love really putting my feet on the ground and, and walking terrain and finding them and seeing how this works. And part of, you know, I think what makes a good hunter is all of us coming together and really formulating these kind of conclusions based off of what we're seeing in the field. And, um, you know, they're also that three and a half to four and a half year old age classes is also the category that, you know, ruts the hardest. So a lot of it has to do, believe it or not, I mean, you, you, I would think you would agree too, is, you know, post-rut recovery, like how much feeds on the ground, um, before, like how, what kind of condition did they go into the rut? So if they have a hard winter and they're rutting super hard, what, what condition did they go into the, you know, into the rut? And, and that will really give a good indication of if they have a hard winter, how they went into the rut and how they survived that winter has a lot to do with kind of like that herd fidelity and what that's going to look like coming out the other side. Um, that also is a really important factor. Like last year in the desert, for example, we saw huge bodied deer, six and a half, seven and a half year old deer that did not get feed because we last year, if you remember, we didn't get monsoons yeah. at all. I mean, the monsoons were almost non-existent. So you had bucks that post-rut recovery in the desert was off the chart. I mean, we're talking about stuff that started out with enormous bases, great frames, and then they just finish off with like no forks. And, you know, up towards the top, they just got willow horn. They were just paper thin. Um, and they had these huge bodies. I mean, 260, 280-pound bodies. And they, they get in fights and they break their antlers like nothing because the weight behind them just crushed their little brittle antlers. And we're talking mature bucks. They would posture up and they, like, got broken main beams and nothing to fight with. You know, I, <laughs> I was laugh, laughing last year watching this going, these guys are totally fighting and they have nubs, you know. <laughs> And just huge bodied brutes and they like were staying away from each other because they didn't have anything to square up with. Um, in the desert last year, I was, I was really laughing about the Chad and I were laughing about that. We, we spent a little bit of time watching some, some deer in the rut. Uh, after I had tagged out, I, I, you know, always make it a point to stay and just, just cause you tag out doesn't mean you shouldn't be studying. I think it's the best time to study, um, because it prepares you and better for, you know, next season. So, uh, it was really interesting to see those animals last year with how robust they left uh, the rut with a post-rut recovery with all the feed that was on the ground last winter Man. and how they entered the rut, you know, the preceding year, all thin with big bodies and, and how they handled that and what happened with their antlers and, and what, what it turned into this year. Next year, um, if we get good monsoons, because we've already started the winter off so good, that post-rut recovery is at an all-time high. I mean, it looks like a salad bar all over the desert. It's unbelievable. So we're going to enter post-rut recovery with flying colors. And if we get monsoons this year, mark my words, we're going to see some of the biggest desert bucks you've ever seen. Yeah. Super uh, exciting. New Mexico hunting Audad, you know, different different part of the country, but same you know, I'm, I'm sure the climates and the rainfall and stuff like that's pretty similar down, you know, I was, I was pretty far South greenest. I mean, I have never in my life, like growing up down in the desert, you know, this is middle of October and just thick green everywhere. Um, like you're saying, I mean that, you know, and, it, and, and we have jumped around on this and it's, but it's so fascinating. Um, and I, and that's what I love about mule deer is, you know, the dynamics of, um, a high country alpine buck and, and how, 
you know, the moisture and the winters and the rut and all that affects him as opposed to the desert bucks, you know, and it's, it's just what makes mule deer beautiful that you can't get with anything else. You know, you really can't, you know, you're not going to get that with elk because they just are so specific to their habitat and antelope, you know, are the same way. Um, you know, and all these little auxiliary animals, you know, a moose is only going to live in certain terrain and bighorn sheep and, you know, desert bighorns. And, and it's just, it's what makes mule deer so beautiful. Um, I think is they don't care, man, they will adapt and they, they will be anywhere. Um, but it's so fun to talk about like, you know, the differences between, you know, how moisture affects the desert bucks. And at the same time, it might be completely destroying the bucks up in the high country or vice versa. Um, oh yeah. You know, right. Like it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it never hit me growing up cause I grew up in that type of country down, you know, Southern Nevada, real desert arid. And we never even understood what a bad winter meant. Like that didn't even, wasn't a thing. All we knew is what you're talking about, like drought and how that would mess with, you know, summer and moisture and ponds and stuff like that. Um, winter kill off was not really a thing, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's interesting though. You, you kind of, um, putting it out, like we're, we're kind of primed up, you know, at least in the desert, you know, the Southern half of the, of the U S of the Southern half of the West. Um, you think if we can get some good, uh, some good spring rains down there that if uh, we see, if we see <laughs> every two months, a, a nice, a nice soaker. Yeah. And we could actually go two months from now without seeing any rain, without any negative, there's enough feed on the ground and that feed's going to mature because the temperatures aren't real high. So by the time that feed peaks out and starts, cause the feed and the high protein doesn't really, this green stuff, you know, it doesn't really do much for them. Yeah. It's when they, it's when that protein really gets peaked out and, and it turns into, not not quite seed, but when it's mature that has the most protein content in it, you know, and you see the best antler development. If they can keep going, and like critical would be April, a little bit of April, a little bit of June, a little bit of August, because these bucks they don't shed till like end October. Um, in some areas that shed they shed at the end of, at the end of September, but. If they can just get a nice soaker, two or three soakers in between now and the hunting season, the desert's going to see some enormous deer because it's primed. It's just totally primed right now. Yeah. The herd condition is insane. Um, we've never before seen, you know, the type of quality, type of class that's out there. There's great age class across the board in the desert. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not talking about, you know, just certain regions. I mean, I mean, the Southwest it doesn't right. matter whether you're hunting Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Oregon, you mean even Oregon and Idaho, the Sage Flats Desert, all that stuff on the border there is going to be because you know none of that really has anything to do with winter kill. I mean, of course, the stuff up towards Boise does, and in those higher country units gets slaughtered, and it's been really bad. But on the Oregon border, it's not quite as bad. Do you have any? Uh, so, do you have any hunts that you specifically apply for like based on years and 
like this, you know, weather and moisture and, and growth and stuff like that? Or do you just, you just doing what you do no matter what doesn't really matter. Like the, like the moon phase sort of thing. I always like to say I'm balling on a budget, dude. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I'm not picky. You know, I, I, I really, at the end of the day, I just want to be in the field. So, um, if you and I are anything alike, we're just going to get the same tags that we can based off of what's available and like go come, hunt them and, come, and like hunt them up, come, you know, whatever we find. Yeah, is, come on me. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if it's a freaking giant heavy horn three point, you know, cool. Like if it's a whatever, it doesn't really matter just as long as it yeah. kind of does something in the moment that gets me fired up. And, um, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm that strategic. It's interesting because I, I place high emphasis in strategy when it comes to the critical aspects, like as far as putting myself in good units and, you know, I mean, I've applied in all, a lot of these Western States for 13, 14 years now, and I have just as that many points in them. I've never drawn anything. So it's kind of like you got to like either buy vouchers, no landowners, right? You got to like, you got to do whatever you can to get yourself in some of these units. And um, that's kind of just the game that you got to, you got to play. You're either buying over the counter tags or making friends with landowners. Right. And just hunting whatever you can. I'm not really good at drawing anything. It's an art. It, it, it really is anymore. Um, you know, the system's so convoluted and there's, it's just so saturated with point systems and stuff like that, that, you know, and, and each state is so complicated. It's like learning a new language when you're applying for each state. And, um, it, it really is, it's, it's an art, you know, and, uh, it's, it's why there's multiple companies out there who make, you know, very nice livings uh taking care of it for guys drawing tags you know just specifically drawing tags for guys because it's um you know drawing good tags and consistently drawn tags and putting plans together and you know not having all your tags hit it on the same year but not you know also not wasting a bunch of bonus points and it's just there's a real big art to it um i, I love it more i will dare say i love it more than actually hunting is the game of like trying to find tags and researching hunts and um, you know, how to use these points and those points in this unit in that state. I love it. Like I, I absolutely love it. But. Well then you and I are probably going to have to connect then. <laughs> <laughs> My dream. I, I, I had a, we had a friend last year and he, um, you know, has worked really hard, I think for a lot of years of his life, but he's also been building points in, a ton of Western States, really good friend of ours. And, uh, it was like my dream come true. And he's like telling me about, I mean, he's got 10 points for this and 10 points for that and 20 points for this and 15 points for this all over the West. It's like my dream. Right. And he's just like, I'm ready to start hunting all these. And I was like, Oh dude, like, Oh, then we're going to have so much fun. It would, it's like, uh, you know, being able to walk into, um, you know, I don't know, like some, movie you know walking into some fancy uh clothing store or something with an unlimited credit card or something like it was just like oh my gosh this is a dream come true but yeah i i love that aspect so any any time i can i love just talking hunts and applying and drawing and using points and stuff like that it's fun so yeah i spent eight points this year on um wyoming uh so for deer. Like the first yeah, that's the first time I've ever, you know, 
had an opportunity to 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 spend points in the game really i mean i I did draw a nevada tag i think it was back in 2012 yeah um but aside from that yeah i'm i'm a i'm an over-the-counter guy as much as possible but there's advantages i think to over-the-counter i think that there's pros and cons of both obviously the genetics and the age class and all that you know gonna happen into a bigger deer but i like getting to know animals though yeah consistently hunting them year after year after year yep and getting to know that ground and getting to know your vantage points and getting to know there's something about hallowed ground that really appeals to me almost more so than like drawing these special tags see and that's like getting to know an animal and that's my achilles heel is i you know, we hunted the same unit in Nevada for, I don't know, five or six years or whatever seasons it was on and off. And I, I hate to say it, but I kind of became not bored, but I just wasn't interested in it. You know, like what's, what's next or where else, or maybe there's a bigger buck somewhere else. And that it's, a, it's terrible because it's, I know there's big bucks there. You know, I know, I know that there's, there's quality of deer that I would be happy shooting every year. Um, and it's, you know, and I, that, that's my point is it's not a good, I don't think it's a good quality to have. Um, because if I just kept putting the time into that, that unit, um, you know, I would have gotten more out of it. I would have gotten exactly what I was looking for out of it. But, um, yeah, it's, that's why I said it's my Achilles Hill is jumping, you know, from state to unit to different unit to, you know, back and forth. Um, and I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying really hard to be the guy that's, you know, okay, like this is, this is the unit that I'm going to invest, you know, at least like, you know, two to four years in of, di- of different hunts on and off, you know, so that I can get to know it and know exactly what's going on there before I move on. But, um, it's, it's fun to wander, you know, and, and try that next unit or whatever, but. I, I agree with you. I, I definitely like venturing out and finding new country to look at um but once i find something that i like that i know has the potential i'm really happy with sticking it out yeah um so i guess i uh (laughs) i have a tendency to to enjoy seeing what what it's possible because every every unit that has the genetics you know it just has to do with the year right if it has the genetics, it has to do with the feed and the water. Like that's it. It, it has, you know, if you hunt it for a couple of years, but you're hunting it on bad years, if you hunt it on four years that are just four bad years, like let's say a deer, a, a fawn is born on a drought year. Believe it or not, that deer 90% of the time will not ever achieve anything all that great. He won't have mass characteristics. He'll have brittle bones. He won't be as strong as a deer born on a non-drought year. Yeah. So you, if you, if you're hunting a, a, a year, that's not a drought year on a deer that was born on a drought year, you're not ever going to see a good buck out of it. it. It makes sense. Like if you just, you know, if I just think back to like, um, you know, uh, animal, you know, the animals that we've raised over the years, whether it's, you know, horses or, you know, we've had goats and all that, like, that that critical time you know it doesn't matter who his parents were um if he's malnourished or if a, if a horse for example is malnourished in that first you know whatever six months or whatever is it's really taken off and growing same, same with people obviously like um you know it can stunt growth and it can it can affect uh 
you know, long, have long-term effects. And so it totally makes sense, um, you know, that that would apply to, you know, to a wild animal as well. Um, never thought of that before. I think that's interesting perspective. That's why I have a tendency to like really let it play out a little bit. If I find a decent genetic floor, I'm not saying I found anything great because I mean, like I've said probably five times already, I, I don't, you know, I'm very happy with what I've done, but at the same time, I know that in the grand scheme of things, what I have done is nothing. And I just, you know, I aspire so much to try and improve upon that. And I know that if I find a, a genetic pool, I just always have that hope in me that, you know, wants to run across that once in a lifetime dream buck where you pull something out of there that shouldn't technically exist, but does. And right. there's so much reward in that. Um, you know, I mean, because the, the, the few desert bucks that I have killed in, in some of the areas I've killed them in, they, they just simply shouldn't be there. <laughs> and that part um, is extremely challenging and so very rewarding. I, I'm kind of just enthralled with it, yeah. con totally consumed with it. When you see something, fill your glass that technically shouldn't be there. A good example was that one buck I killed um, two years ago. Is it 32 and a half inch wide, mm -hmm. double hook cheater, six by six with eye guards? Like, he he may not have had the best forks, but that's given his conditions, not the deer. Like, he he represents. I mean, he has 41 inches of mass. He's just thick all over, and you know he's the most beautiful frame deer I've ever seen uh, that I've you know gotten to wrap my hands around. And when I looked at him on the hoof through my scope, I about just fell over. I'm like, what did it take for you to be here in this place and be that? You're just so regal. You're so special. Like, I almost don't want to arrow you, but I know it's the opportunity of a lifetime to be in your presence right now. I hunted that deer for, I think, almost a couple of weeks or something like that, you know, from the day I found him every single day to the day I arrowed him. And I was obsessed. I'm like, I couldn't turn away. You know, you just watch him feeding away with these big old hooks coming off each side. And, you know, knowing where he was, you're just like, this is not possible. Like, and I was telling, you know, my girl, I was like, I'm like, this, this thing's, he shouldn't be here. Technically, he shouldn't be, he shouldn't exist, you know. And to be able to watch him feed and be a part of his life and watch him rut and, you know, get up on him and arrow him and, and finally put him on my pack was kind of like a surreal moment. Even though he's not a score monster, the deer has an over 200 inch frame. If you look at his frame and just look at how he's put together and his mass, the characteristics of him, like if he wasn't lopsided, meaning his, you know, right back fork wasn't uh, short and, and his left front fork wasn't short. And if his short forks were matching, I mean, he's over 200, but because of that, he's not, you know, he won't even, come close it's just the the strangest things that make them what they are but again i don't really care about the inches because i look at him for what he was where he was and what it took for him to get that you know to be what he was i mean he's just such an epically beautiful animal he was so incredible to hunt he was smart and you know outwitted me and <laughs> tested me and and you know it's almost like you feel like all the years of the, you know, the decade plus that went into getting to that moment where I'm like in range at full draw culminated to the moment that you release. 
And when the arrow strikes true and you come up on the animal and you hold the hands, it's just a bit of reverence and a moment of silence. And, you know, like truthfully, I'm tears. It doesn't matter the inches you're, you're looking at what it took for both of you to be there in that spot. And, um, I think that's the real beauty and the challenge of being in that moment with these animals that just invigorates me to be out there every year with them and never grows old. And something that I, I, you know, I can't candidly, I hope never does. I think if anything, I start getting more and more and more, uh, wrapped up in it. I love it even more. And if anything, I want to pass on more of what I can to people who are really interested because we're just, let's face it. We're a couple of guys that are totally nuts about the outdoors. We're totally nuts about the outdoors. We don't know, you know, how the other grew up, whether we had good childhoods, bad childhoods. We don't know, you know, what we liked or, you know, what our preferences were necessarily as, as kids or, or even as adults. But we do know one thing. We're consummate and passionate outdoorsmen. We love it so much that we do everything we could for the betterment of it and do everything we could to be stewards of it. I mean, that's what this podcast is. It, it, it's part of what you do to help give back to something you love so much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's the beauty of it is what you just said is that is enough. You know, it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be anything more than that. You know, we don't need to, you know, it, it doesn't matter our backgrounds. It doesn't matter. It just, that's all we need is for, you know, other like-minded people who also, um, have a passion for the outdoors and, and I'm willing to help, you know, and, and you are too. And, and I think any, any, you know, upstanding hunter is, is willing to do anything they can, um, you know, as long as, as long as we all agree on that and, and that's the beauty of it, you know, it doesn't have to go any deeper than that. So it's kind of funny. Like I am willing to almost answer any question for somebody, but the moment they start talking about units or States, I'm out. <laughs> like what state were you in? What unit were you in? Just go pound sand. Like, don't talk to me. Go the other direction. Like when I asked we you, told us- <laughs> <laughs> where exactly you're in you didn't want to say (laughs) i'm in alaska bro yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean it it really is one of those things like i mean i'm like an old old turd now i'm 41 you know (laughs) like i got gray hair in my chin like crazy and it doesn't grow on top anymore and i have to fight to keep weight off so it's kind of one of those things where um, the next crop is growing and we have to make sure that the next crop doesn't do the mistakes that we did. And we try and help usher them along into knowing what it's like to try and care for these animals that gave us everything that we know. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a perfect way to end. And I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, doing your, your little bit on this, on the, even on just this podcast and, um, man, want to give you, want to give you credit as I wrap up for just being completely invested in, in mule deer and what you're doing, you know, you're, you do it for all the right reasons and you, you clearly, you know, you take it serious to every single level. So I give you credit for that. I, it's such a mutual thing. I mean, this is not, this is not a, like a, uh, an ending rear kissing ceremony. You're in that. <laughs> 
in that same place, I, I wouldn't accept going on a podcast with anybody other than somebody who I respect in the field. So I, I feel that way about what you do as well. And I think, you know, that to your core, uh, I appreciate and I'm humbly just stoked that you even thought of me to be here. So, you know, I appreciate that a ton, man. And give my regards to your family. I hope you guys have a, uh, an epic year. Um, and we'll keep in touch throughout sure. the season. Yeah. Now I have your uh, cell phone number. I'm going to blow you up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to put it on. Uh, uh, hey, uh, this guy, Dustin, wherever he wants to refinance his house. Or <laughs> Too late. That you know, one's put, already been done. <laughs> yeah. Lendingtree.com. Next yeah. thing you're going to know, you're going to get like 20 calls a day. <laughs> no, oh. no. Joke's on you because I was, I was just trying to get your cell phone. So now we've, uh, we've become hunting buddies. So. <laughs> cool. Yeah. If I butt dial dial yeah. you talking about something totally random, just just hit delete. <laughs> hey, sounds good, brother. Uh thanks for jumping on, man. And uh yeah, appreciate it and have a good night. You too, man. Take care. See you, Martin. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.